when the, the most profound of all mysteries, the Incarnation, took place. We're so, we're so moved when we, we ponder and we contemplate the, the mystery not only of the Incarnation, but, but the profound depth of the mystery of the intensity of Your love for us in our fallen state, in our nature, to become like one of us and to live among us and to die among us so that we could always be together, Father. We're thankful that You give us this this great gift of grace through faith. We pray, Father, that all the days of our lives that we will never take that, that act of, of heroic love flippantly or take it for granted or to be lackadaisical with the precious nature of it at any time in our life. But to always, Father, live our life worthy of, of that love that You have bestowed upon our hearts and soul. Thank You for Your Son, Jesus. Thank You so much for Your Son, Jesus. And it's in His name that we pray and all the church said. I want to begin this morning with another story about a monastery. This time, uh, an initiate by the name of Peter goes into a monastery that practices a vow of silence. But the difference is, in this particular monastery, you're only allowed to break that vow of silence once every ten years, once every decade. Are you allowed to speak or to hear another ver- a person's voice speak to you? And so Peter goes in, spends his first ten years in silence. The time comes for him to be able to break that vow for just a short period of time. And he has a very, very short statement that he reads to, to all of his, his fellow monks. And the statement is, the food is terrible. And then ensues silence for another ten years. Not another word is said. And at the end of that decade, it's time for uh, Peter to, to speak again. He breaks his vow of silence in front of all of his fellow monks. And he says to all of them, the bed is really hard. And then the silence is, is, is it, it, it captures that monastery for another ten years. And at the end of that ten years, Peter stands in front of all those monks and he says, I quit. And one of the monks turned to the other monk and said, you know what, I didn't think that guy was going to last. He's always complaining. (laughs) You know, it doesn't matter where you are, you're going to find unhappy people. You're going to find people that are unhappy. And unhappiness is part of the real Christmas story And it begins with a text about a king who was troubled. If you're reading along in your Bible, you can circle that word troubled. It's a very curious word. It's the same word that we find in three consecutive chapters in the Gospel of John. In chapter 11, Jesus is standing in front of the tomb of one of his best friends in all all of the world, a fellow by the name of Lazarus who has died. And that word trouble describes the emotion that Jesus has in front of that tomb, knowing that his friend is inside of that tomb, and it's that emotion that leads to Jesus weeping in John 11. In John chapter 12, it's the same word, troubled, 
that describes how Jesus feels on the inside of His body, inside of His soul, inside of the viscera, inside of His heart, when He thinks about the cross that's looming right there in His future, just, just a, a few short hours off. It's also the emotion in John chapter 13 that He feels when He talks with His disciples. They're there at the Last Supper. It's an intimate moment for He and His disciples. And He tells them that one of their own number, one of the twelve, one that He's been wandering around Palestine for three years with, it's out of that number that one will betray Him. And John says He's troubled. That He's troubled. It's an extremely powerful, extremely emotional word. Now here's the question for us this morning. As we think about the text that that Bobby read for us just a minute ago, why would such a powerful man, a man like Herod, a man who is king, why would such a powerful man as Herod feel troubled at the birth of a little baby? Well, I think the answer to that question, to one degree or another, is found, the answer to that is found in the context of Herod's life itself. When you think about Herod's life, there is every reason for him to be troubled. In 40 B.C., the Roman Senate gives to Herod the title King of the Jews. It was a title that he coveted. It was a title that he wanted very much. And the operative word in the life of Herod, in the life of all of the Herods, was power. And to have lots of it. And Herod learned very early in life, through the poisoning of his father Antipater, that power is a very tenuous and at times a very shaky commodity and that you have to wield it with a firm grip. And so when Herod comes to power, he ruled 40 years, nearly 40 years, and he had one basic rule of thumb, and it's this. You crush the opposition. Whatever it costs, whatever it takes, you crush the opposition. So the first thing that Herod did when he became king was he began to kill people. He began to kill people. He started with the Sanhedrin, which was, as you know, the authoritative body of, of leaders among the Jewish people. He had rightly sensed that there was a bit of disdain in their minds toward King Herod because he wasn't fully Jewish. His mother was not Jewish. He was, in fact, half Idumean. And so he rightly sensed that in the Sanhedrin there was a little bit of disdain, a little bit of separateness between him and the Sanhedrin. And so he began killing off members of the Sanhedrin to get the message across, not only to the Sanhedrin, but to all of the Jews in South Judea and northern, northern Galilee. The message was, you don't mess with me. You don't mess with me. One time he got upset. It's kind of a wishful euphemism to say that he got upset, but he got so upset that he had 300 of his court officials killed. His appetite for destruction didn't stop short of his family. During his reign, during that 40 years, he killed two brothers-in-law. He had his beloved wife, Mary Omni, his favorite, Mary Omni I, murdered because he suspected adultery, although it was never proven. And it was a decision that he regretted all of his life. He had a mother-in-law. In fact, he had lots of mothers-in-law. He had many wives. But he had a mother-in-law murdered as well as an uncle. He had some sons executed. One was executed five days before Herod himself died. Truth be told, even Caesar Augustus took note of the fact that King Herod was not a very pleasant individual to anyone in Palestine. And he said one time, it's better to be Herod's pig than to be his son. And by that he meant, you know, you had a better chance of living to a ripe old age if you were Herod's pig and not his son. 
Five days before his death, Herod ordered the arrest of many citizens and decreed that they would be executed on the day of his death to ensure that there was a proper amount of mourning that was taking place in his kingdom. This is the kind of man that Herod the Great was and what he passed on to his, to his successor, his son Archelaus. And that's why when Herod died and his son Archelaus began to rule in Judah, Joseph is told in a dream not to return to the southern part of, of Judea, to the southern part of Israel, but to go north. No, don't go back to Bethlehem. Don't stick around Jerusalem, but go north. Go back up to Galilee because Archelaus is a murderous fool like his father. One of the first things that Archelaus did was to round up 3,000 Jews and have them slaughtered just like his father used to do. To secure his power. To make everyone aware of the fact that you didn't mess with my father, you don't mess with me. These events in Herod's life explain why all Jerusalem was troubled by the question of the Magi. They don't know Herod. They know he's a great architect, but they don't really know him like everyone else in Israel knows Herod. And so, innocently, perhaps even naively, you know, you don't have to be too smart to go up to a king and ask where the other king is born to know that that's kind of a dangerous proposition. But they do it. They go up to Herod and they ask, where is the one who is born king of the Jews? Where's the king of the Jews, Herod? And all Jerusalem knew that when Herod was troubled, he would bring trouble down on the heads of everyone ruthlessly and indiscriminately. And Herod is troubled. Herod is troubled by the question about another king. And so he hatches a scheme. The first part of the scheme is to find out where this rival king is going to be born. And believe it or not, Herod goes to the Scriptures. He goes to the Bible of his day, the Old Testament he goes to those scriptures to ascertain this information. Now, Herod has absolutely no intention of letting the scriptures shape his life. Far be it that this word would ever have any kind of a moral authority, spiritual authority in his life. But he is willing to use them for his own gain. We haven't changed very much, have we? Well, he finds, after consulting the religious experts, that this child, this king of the Jews, is to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David, just a, a, a few miles south of Jerusalem. Which leads then part two of this scheme. The second part of this plan is to deceive these magi, these wise men from the east. He tells them to go and find the child. Go find the child. They've said, where's the king? He says, go find the child. He in no way wants to refer to this baby as the king. And he wants the Magi to go and do it, to find, and then to tell him specifically where the child is. Herod. Herod is a shrewd man. Shrewd. He knew that if he sent an armed escort with these wise men, they would figure out what he is up to. You go find out where he is. You go find out the address and then you tell me where he is so that I can worship him too. Is shrewd. But what Herod didn't understand is that you cannot deceive God. You cannot deceive God even when you deceive other people, even other wise men. 
Psalm 2 was written so many hundreds of years before this time that it fits so well with the story. The psalmist says, Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one, the one enthroned in heaven. This one church laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. The Lord knew what Herod was doing, and so He sent an angel to speak to Joseph in a dream. Joseph is sleeping one night in a dream. An angel, an angel shows up and tells him that he has to leave. And the Bible tells us that he got up immediately and they fled during the night giving an indication of how close a call it was. And Herod has been outwitted. And Herod is no longer troubled. Herod becomes furious. And this, this Herod, furious, dropping all pretenses, flies into a murderous rage. And what he did next seems so barbaric. The very definition of murderous insanity that it's almost too hard to believe. But it was very typical of him. Herod sends his troopers to Bethlehem with the orders to kill any male child under the age of two. And so they did. And so they did. There is some debate on this event. But scholars estimate that in a town the size of Bethlehem, that this was anywhere from 5 to 25 babies that were murdered on the spot by a maniacal despot who was troubled. Who was troubled. And that is the true story of Christmas, not necessarily the one that you find on the cover of greeting cards, not the one that Bing Crosby sings about. The true Christmas story is, is about, in part, in part, mind you, is about violence and rage and power and insecurity and jealousy and murder and a young family in flight during the night to another country. And a bunch of tiny little graves in a small town outside of the metropolis of Jerusalem. It is the story of a king who fought a birth. Do you know what I think? After 2,000 years, there are many that still fight that birth. But after 2,000 years, it is that baby's kingdom that is still standing. And so what is the relevance to us? Herod has been dead and buried for nearly 2,000 years, but his spirit still lives in our era. At the heart of, of Christmas, at the heart of the Christmas story, is a clash between the self-giving Son of God and the self-serving Spirit of the world that we encounter every day. At the heart of the Christmas story is the conflict between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the personal kingdom without God. Herod's creating of a kingdom with Herod values, and the Herod way of, of dealing with issues and with problems and with Herod rules separate and apart from God 
is what we call human autonomy. It's where we vote. And our vote is the only one that counts when it comes to deciding the course of our life. How we're going to deal with things. How we're going to make it in this world. If you were an existentialist, you would say autonomy is a beautiful thing because it means that every person inside of them has the power and the will and, and the right to do whatever they need to do in order to actualize themselves completely. That you have inside of you the right and the power and the might and the intelligence to accomplish what is truly meaningful and truly significant in your life. For some, it might be pleasure. Whatever it is that you want to feel, how often you want to feel it, wherever you want to feel it, in whatever form that pleasure takes, you do that. For others, it's possessions. Collect, collect, gather, 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 whatever the cost. For others, it's power. For others, it's, it's the, the ability to be able to, to, to wield power. Whenever, whenever we need to, it might be an argument with a spouse or a friend over something significant, insignificant. It might be the fact that we can make this decision and we make that decision because we, we have the power to do it. It is within our, our own hands and our own purview to do it. And so we make that decision. That is the power of autonomy. Now, not everything with autonomy is a bad, especially as it relates to the development of personal responsibility. But that autonomy, my friends, that human autonomy, like everything that does not include God, has a dark side to it. And we see in Herod's life, not metaphor, but we see the actuality of it. We see the literalness of that autonomy, that power that is unchecked, by the presence of God and the product of His restraintless kingdom was anxiety and a psychopathic suspicion and destruction and sadness, a lack of joy, unhappiness, not just inside, not just inside of Herod himself, but inside most of the people that were very close to him. And I think that what we need to realize this morning is that Herod is not some isolated case. That Herod is not some isolated case study in evil, but is representative of the spirit that lives on in our very day. A spirit that truth be told. That truth be told. That at some degree, at some level, a spirit that each of us struggles with every day. Herod is who we are. Herod is who we are. What we become when we are apart from the grace of God. Here is how Paul would say it. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became what? Futile. And their hearts were darkened. They became filled with every kind of wickedness and evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. Gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. Invent ways 
of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. What the first reaction of raw human spirit to the kingdom and lordship of Jesus was, was rebellion and violence. Rebellion and violence. Herod is just simply a graphic, literal example and illustration of the disease of self-centeredness that has affected all men. All men. His reaction to another center of the universe is the same reaction we all have. Unregenerate human nature fights passionately for self-sovereignty and it will nearly go to any length to retain and preserve its own crown. I mean, when's the last time you felt great about being humble? The Herod spirit will always be self-rule. And self-accountability, which means no accountability. And self-preservation, which means I'll do whatever it takes to stay on top. I'll do whatever it takes, not just to survive, but to thrive and to flourish. The Herod spirit is seen in the story of a parable that Jesus told the prodigal son where that son says, you know, I don't want to live in my father's house anymore. I don't want to follow my father's rules anymore. I don't want to live in the vicinity of my father and his authority and his presence anymore. I'm going to go off into a far country and I'm going to take whatever I can take with me and I'm going to do what it is that I want to do. And no one can make me do any differently. Because I'm going to do what I want to do. The Herod spirit lives on even in families. The Herod spirit says, it's my life. It's my body. It's my rights. And no one else is going to tread on my kingdom without a fight. Now we have come to terms with this spirit that not only lives on in our community, but lives on in each and every one of us. We have to come to terms with that. We have to come to terms with this spirit that not only lives in us, but in our hearts and in everyone around us. Because if Jesus is King, if Jesus is Lord, then what we thought was our reign is over. Our sovereignty has ended. It has ended. It has ceased. But the bottom line is that we struggle, just like Herod, but that will not stand in the end. And as we, we think about the birth of Jesus in the coming days, I think that we need to survey our hearts for that Herod spirit that resides in some of us, even in this room. Three things to consider. The first, have we allowed Jesus to invade our lives and challenge our autonomy? Have we allowed Jesus, to come into our lives as Lord and to challenge our own self-autonomy as Lord and as King and as Sovereign. 
You know, there's a subtle reminder of grace in this story that we sometimes miss. God gave Herod the news that there is a Lord whose birth is not catalyst for trouble. But His birth is, is good news for joy for all people. But have we, like Herod, built up walls around our perception so, so that we are blind to the work of, of God in His own creation? Secondly, have we accepted the Lordship of Jesus in our lives? Truly. Have we accepted the fact that He is not just Savior, but He is Lord? He is not just the One who died on the cross, but He is King of our life. That we are His disciples, which means that we order our life according to His will. Have we accepted the Lordship of Jesus in our lives, regardless of what station we might find ourselves in, regardless of whatever situation or circumstance we might find ourselves in? Our hearts, friends, our hearts will always be the place of battle between two kings. And you have to decide each day you have to decide each day which of these kingdoms is going to have dominion over your life. Will I be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have we allowed Him to invade our lives? To challenge our autonomy? Have we accepted the Lordship of Jesus in our lives? And have we gotten down on our knees to worship the King? You think about those wise men. It seems so naive to approach another king and ask, King, do you know where the other king is being born? It doesn't seem very wise. It doesn't seem to be very frugal. It doesn't seem to be very steward-like to take all of that money and all of that time and all of that energy and all of that intellect and dedicate it to a journey in search of a king. But what we see embodied in wisdom is when they see Jesus as a child and recognize the greatness that is in that child and the man he will grow up to be. They bow down and they worship him. You know, sometimes we can go through the motions of being humble, can't we? We can say we're sorry and half mean it. We can say, maybe I was wrong and maybe half mean it and hate it 100%. We can do the same thing with worship. Overtly, we're not saying we don't believe. We don't believe. God is, God is dead. God, I'm an atheist. I don't believe. We, overtly, we don't do that. But covertly, we sometimes... We sometimes insert that autonomy in such a way that when it comes to worship, we're going through the motions. We're going through the motions. 
We say the right words. We say the right words. We sing the right melody. We show up at the right time. But have we bowed our entire, entire life, bent our knees, gotten down on our knees in worship of the greatness of the King Jesus? I'm going to ask you to do something. I think that the greatest life that you can ever live is to live the life of faith. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. There are times when, when you're living a life of faith where things get very, very, very uh, uh, torturous at times because of, of the kind of world that we live in. But when you become a Christian, what happens is that God not only clears your conscience, and not only clears that conscience and that slate, or whatever you want to call it, of everything bad that you've ever done, but everything bad that you're going to do in the future. It is a clean slate. And not only that, but He gives you a wisdom by which to live your life. It is a life that not, it's not just a manual. It's not just rules to live in ten steps in some kind of a humanistic way of, 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 of achievement. It's a way of shaping your life. It's a way of shaping your mind and your thinking. Not only about God, but about yourself and about every other human being. It is a wisdom that comes from the throne of God Himself. It is His view and His vision of what life is to be all about and how it's to be lived in relationship with Him. And on top of that, He puts His Spirit inside of you. And I don't know the nuts and bolts of that. I don't know how it works. I just know... That He promises that when He forgives you of your sins, when we decide that He is King, which is so key with that word repentance, that I'm no longer going to be the King of my own life, but I'm going to allow Him. I'm changing my life. That when we do that, and by faith come to Him, and our sins are washed away, that slate is made clean, He puts His Spirit inside of you so that in, in kind of a organic botanical way to use the words of the Bible, your life changes and you begin to bear fruit. And where there was anger and strife and heartlessness and meanness and a volatile spirit and jealousy and gossip and slander and all of those things, because of that spirit and because of that word and because of the forgiveness of those sins and because of fellowship inside of a body of believers that encourage you to do the same, we see self-control and love and kindness, and gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control begin to blossom. You have buds where you didn't even think you were alive. And that's the life that Christ offers you today. And if there's some way that our church can help you make that kind of connection, what I'm going to ask you to do is during the singing of this song, some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front, and these men will sit down and talk with you and let you know what it is that is God's will when it comes to accepting His Son Jesus and becoming, becoming a disciple. And for the rest of us, we ask ourselves that question. We've been singing this morning, but have we really worshipped? For some, we've been worshipping all day. But everyone needs to ask, have I just been singing? 
And do I really need to worship right now? Ben's going to lead us in a song. If there's any way our church can minister to you, you can come down to the front to talk to these shepherds as we stand and worship the King. You are Lord of creation and Lord of my life. Lord of the land and the sea. You are Lord of the heavens.